Amen. I'm going to invite you to stay standing as Pastor Matt comes up this morning. Let me explain to you why you're remaining standing. We just got done uh, singing several songs together. And what did we sing about? Uh, we sang about the great things God has done. We sang that we want Jesus' name to be magnified. We sang about our heavenly and eternal home and how holy our God is, and we exalted his name. And as we go into our study today from Exodus 15 and 16, the passage actually starts with the first song recorded in the scriptures, the first full song, often referred to as the Song of Moses. And I don't have a melody for that, and so we're not going to sing that song together. But I would love for us to start by reading it together, and we're going to read it responsively. And so I'm going to read the part that's marked leader, and if you guys would read the part marked congregation, uh, in this continued time of singing, let's sing that song together. We'll say it together. Uh, beginning with me, the Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Thank you, friends. You may be seated. 
As I said, this is the first full song recorded in the Bible known as the Song of Moses. And here we see Israel singing its praises to God. And as we see this song of praise to God, it reminds us of some things that we want to be true as we sing our praises to God. And I just want to remind you of a few of those things that we see here that are true of Israel and that we absolutely want to be true of us. Starting with this, all God's people sing as an expression of joy. All God's people sing as an expression of their joy in the Lord. Moses and all the people of Israel sang to the Lord. Uh, how could they not? W what has happened? God has delivered them in a mighty way from slavery to freedom. How can they not praise God in song for what has happened? God has been their salvation, and God has made a natural expression of the joy of our heart to be singing. James chapter 5, verse 13 says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. Right? That command of the Lord is, if anyone has joy, anyone has cheer, what do you do with it? You sing songs of praise to the Lord. Because God has designed us to be a people whose joy and rejoicing overflow in singing. And again, how can we not be a people whose joy overflows in singing when we realize what God has done in order to save us from our sins, to bring us into his family, and to give us life everlasting with him? It is natural for our joy to overflow so that we rejoice in the Lord always. And the expression of that joy is our singing great praise to him. And as passages like Revelation 5 and Revelation 15 teach us, we will continue to do this throughout all of eternity, to praise his name in song again and again. All God's people sing as an expression of joy. Second, we see here that our songs are meant to exalt God's greatness. What is it that Israel's singing about? A whole lot of these lyrics are dedicated to just pointing out how great and majestic our God is. In just these few verses, they point out about our God. And as I read this, I want to encourage you to just affirm these things again about your God in your mind. He is triumphant. He is our strength. He is our song. He is our father. He is a mighty warrior. He is powerful, majestic, our deliverer. He is the one true God. He is holy, awesome, glorious, the wonder worker. He is love. He is our redeemer. He is eternal king. Just in those few verses, all of those things are affirmed about God. And when we sing songs, the primary focus is to talk about how great he is. We come together to express to God his greatness and to brag to each other about how great our God is. And one of the beautiful side benefits when we come together and brag about how great our God is, is that bragging that we do together in song is an encouragement to our faith. When we hear the people around us talking about how great God is, it encourages our own faith. When, when I sit over here on a Sunday morning, it is wonderful to sing songs to God. But when I hear the Allens singing behind me, right, 
It is a joy, and not just because they sing well, right? It's a joy because as they sing, I recognize, hey, they love the Lord. And they recognize his greatness. And it is an encouragement to me to hear them sing. And part of what God has designed is for us to be a constant encouragement to each other as we sing about his greatness. And so we want to make sure our songs are meant to exalt God's greatness. Third, we see here our songs exalt God's plan of salvation. Through the poetic language of this song, the people of Israel are singing about God delivering them through great walls of water. God overcoming their enemies in the sea. And God bringing them to a land where he will establish them upon his holy mountain and dwell with his people. What are they singing about? They are singing about God's pathway of salvation for them. And so when we sing, we recognize one of the things we want to be the primary focus of our songs is God's pathway of salvation for us that we call the gospel. We want to sing the gospel over and over again to each other and talk about how God has saved us out of slavery to sin. Talk about how God has overcome our enemies of sin and death, how God has brought us to new life into relationship with him that will last forever so that we sing the hymn of heaven. We're overwhelmed by the goodness of his salvation in our life. Right? We, we want that to be a focus of our singing. We sing the gospel goodness of God over and over again. His greatness and his gospel salvation. Final thing I want to point out here is when we sing songs, it's the lyrics that matter most. That isn't to say that melodies are unimportant, but it's the lyrics that matter most. I want you to notice that this song and its words have been preserved for us. Its melody and its style have not. I think of the Song of Moses here probably as a polka that's being sung with full accordion accompaniment. Right? Is that your thought as well? Maybe not. When we sing, the melodies and the styles, they are servants to the lyrics in order to get the lyrics stuck within our heads and our hearts. Right? And God says he has designed it that way. He wants music to be a tool to get the word of our God stuck within us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 might be, there, there aren't a lot of verses about singing in the New Testament, but Colossians 3:16 might be the preeminent verse about singing. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Those ideas in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, they're all meant to flow together. There is no break in the sentence between teaching and admonishing and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They are all meant to flow together as ways that the word of Christ dwells richly in our lives. Right? God has designed music to be a way in which the word of Christ dwells richly within us that it gets stuck in us. When I was throwing in a, a load of laundry on Friday afternoon, 
I found myself humming and even singing a chorus from a song that we had sung the previous Sunday. Now, I'll tell you what, rarely when I'm wandering around the house does a paragraph from a book that I read begin to go through my mind, or even a line from a sermon. But all the time, a chorus of a song comes into my mind. I start humming it, I start singing it, because God has designed music to get stuck within us. And so it is extremely important, God says, that that music is used for his purposes in order to get the word of Christ stuck in us so that it dwells richly within us. And so when we sing, when we listen to music, we want songs that teach us richly the scriptures. We want songs that remind us of the greatness of who God is. We need songs that allow us to proclaim the gospel one to another and encourage each other in the gospel. Right? Styles and melodies, they come and go. In my 20-whatever years as a pastor, I, I'm sh it would be shocking to you how many conversations I've had about musical styles and melodies. Right? But, but they are relatively unimportant when compared to the lyrics of those things that we sing. That's where God wants his truth to be stuck in us. It's the lyrics that matter most. Well, the people of Israel, they have sung God's praises. Uh, they have taken delight in him and his greatness. They've sung about his deliverance. And now they move on. In the second half of chapter 15, they begin to head through the wilderness towards the promised land. But there's a problem. As they travel for three days through the wilderness, there's no water. Uh, maybe they have extra water for the first day. But now, three days into their journey, they've had no water for a day or two as they go through this hot and barren wilderness. And then they finally discover water at a place called Marah. Now, some of you are familiar enough with some Hebrew where you're like, Mara, well, that doesn't sound like good news. No, no, you're right if you know that, right? Uh, oh, there's Colossians 3.16. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. After three days of no water, they find water and it's undrinkable. And they name the place Mara because in Hebrew it means bitter. Like, we, we can't drink it. We finally found water. And there is no way that we can drink this. It's not drinkable. So what are they going to do? Verse 24, they're going to grumble and complain to God and to Moses about what is going on. Are they going to say, God, you've provided so miraculously and so thoroughly for our needs. We trust you. Would you just provide water right now? No, no, they're not. They are going to just come and grumble and complain because they say, God, you've brought us out here into the desert to go ahead and kill us. The people of Israel remind me a little of me. How many times in my life does God provide so thoroughly again and again, and so faithfully, again, and again, and then I face a new obstacle. And instead of looking back at his constant and faithful provision and trusting, I look at that obstacle and go, 
oh no, what are we going to do? And I experience worry and anxiety and fear, and I begin to grumble, and I begin to complain. The people of Israel remind me of me. And what is needed in this situation is what we talked about last week, to not focus eyes on the obstacle that only produces fear, worry, anxiety, grumbling, and complaining, but instead to focus their eyes on God Almighty who's with them, who has provided everything faithfully for them along the way. God has designed thankfulness for us just for this purpose. As we practice thankfulness to God, daily thankfulness to God, where does it draw the focus of our attention? To Him, to what He has provided. And so He calls on us to be a people who give thanks in all circumstances because our constant thankfulness is drawing our eyes away from obstacles and to God Almighty and to the faithfulness that He has shown to us. The people of Israel, they're, they're grumbling and complaining but God has not brought them out into the wilderness. He has not saved them from the Egyptians in order to have them die of thirst in the desert. And so God provides a way for them in verse 25. And he cried to the Lord, that is Moses, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There are some people who read this passage, and they begin to try and examine what kind of wood you can throw into undrinkable water to make it drinkable. I think they're missing the point here, right? The log is a symbol that is being thrown into the water, and God is working a miracle so that that water which is bitter is now made pure. And now that he has saved them so that they will not die of dehydration, he reminds them they've been called to be an obedient people. Verse 25 and 26 then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Follow me and you will never suffer the plagues of Egypt. Those plagues were a small foretaste of divine judgment. And judgment isn't for those I have saved who follow after me. If you are following me, those judgments will never come upon you. I want you to notice, God saves them and then reminds them that they're called to be obedient. Right? God doesn't say, be obedient, and then perhaps if you're obedient enough, I'll save you. Right? God saves them out of His grace and His mercy and then reminds them, I've saved you so that you will be an obedient people. And the same is true in our life. God doesn't come to us and say, let's see if you can be obedient enough, and then if you are, I'll save you. God saves us out of His grace and His mercy so that we can be an obedient people. And this passage reminds us of that. As we hear this account about the bitter water, and the log thrown in, and the people's ability to drink and be saved. Does it draw your mind to Jesus? Right? Does, it, does it draw your mind to the gospel? Here we have a, a group of Israelites who were thirsty. 
I don't mean I, I ate a few too many potato chips. I could really use a drink thirsty. I mean, we've been wandering in a hot wilderness for two days. We're on the verge of dying thirsty. And God has a log thrown into the water so that the water is purified and they can be fully satiated. They can drink their fill. We can't read about that without thinking about Christ. We are a people who are thirsting. Our souls, our lives, they were designed for a relationship with God. Because of sin, we don't have that relationship that we were designed for. And so our souls, our lives, they thirst for God. We were made for that. And ultimately, because Jesus died on an entirely different log, we are now able to have full access to the living water and be fully satisfied in him. In John chapter 4, Jesus is sitting and he is talking to a Samaritan woman by a well. And as he is talking to her, uh, he asks her for a drink of water from the well. And she says that she's shocked that he would ask her, a Samaritan, for a drink of water from the well. And Jesus' response to that in chapter 4, verse 10 is, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A couple of verses later, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. As the Israelites received refreshment from God in the desert, so our souls receive the refreshment that they need from God's Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did on a log. All bitterness in our hearts is being made pure because of what Jesus did on our behalf because he is the living water who provides everything that we would need to be satisfied. He is our living water. But water isn't all that God provides in the wilderness in order to satisfy his people. In chapter 16, we see the people in need again. And guess what they begin to do? They begin to grumble and to murmur and to complain. This time it's because they're hungry. Have you ever been hangry? I can think of several times where uh, things have gotten busy at work. I wound up just skipping lunch. I get home. My wife usually tries to interact with me in some sort of nice and positive way. Hey, how was your day? And my response in those situations where, oh, man, I'm so hungry. I'm, I, you know, you start to get a little bit tired if you're hangry and everything feels bad and you're grumpy. And my responses are something along the lines of, what does it matter how my day was? What does it matter about anything? Right? Who cares? Nobody cares. Right? I'm like that, uh, that diva on those sneak, uh, Snickers commercials, right? Uh, who's, who's hangry. 
Well, the Israelites are hangry, and they're not, oops, I missed lunch, hangry. They are, wow, we've been wandering in the wilderness, and we've had no food for a really, really long time, hangry. As a matter of fact, they're so hungry here that they said it would have been better for us to have been murdered in Egypt than to come out here and experience what we're experiencing. And so they begin to grumble, they begin to complain, and God is going to provide for them miracle bread. Now, before we get to the miracle bread, as I read about this, one question I have is, why doesn't God discipline them for their grumbling and complaining? In this chapter, they are grumbling and complaining and fussing uh, to God, and He is not disciplining them. He's providing the things that they need, but He's not providing discipline. Why is that? I think... It's because as they are coming out of Egypt and beginning to walk with God, really for the first time as an independent nation, they are in their infancy in their relationship with God. When a three-month-old fusses and whines about things they don't have, we generally don't bring severe discipline into that three-month-old life, right? We don't expect them to know better at three months old. Now, if they are still fussing and whining at us at three years old, at three years old, we bring discipline into their lives. They need to know better. If they're still fussing and whining at us at six years old, we bring greater discipline into their life because they should really know better. By But at three months old, we don't bring discipline into their lives at that point. They don't know better. And I think that's part of what we see from God as Israel is walking with him through the wilderness. Here they are in their infancy of these wanderings. And as they're walking with God, he's simply providing what they need. They're grumbling, they're complaining, and he is teaching them again and again, you can count on me, you can count on me, I'm your provider, I have all power. Now later on in these wilderness wanderings, they are going to grumble and they are going to complain, and God is going to bring diseases against the people that kill thousands. He's going to bring snakes that kill many. He's going to, at one point, open up the earth and swallow an entire group of people. There's a generation that's not going to get to go into the promised land. God brings discipline against his people as they continue on in the relationship. But early in the infancy of that relationship, he's not disciplining them. He's just providing for them, helping them to see the pattern of his provision. And here... He provides miracle bread. What's the miracle bread called? Yeah, that's right. And what do we find out about manna to feed these hangry Israelites? Well, as we walk through chapter 16, here are some things we find out about the manna. It comes down from heaven. Uh, They were to trust God's daily provision and only gather one day's portion. Right? Now, you'll notice that it says Exodus 4, Exodus 5, Exodus 7. Those are all wrong. It's supposed to say verse 4, right? verse 5, verse 7, those kinds of things. Uh, so these are all from Exodus 16. Right? They were to trust God's daily provision. Only gather one day's portion. You ha- have faith in me. I'm going to provide each and every day. On the sixth day, they were to gather twice as much so that they did not gather on the Sabbath. The manna was to help them see God's great glory. Manna came in the morning as flakes on the ground, verse 14. They were to gather an omer per person. Does that help you out? 
right? Uh, an omer is somewhere about three-quarters of a gallon, something along those lines, per person. A good amount. They weren't to try and keep it until the next day. If they did, it would go bad. Because God said, no, I want you to get into this rhythm of my daily provision for you. You're trusting in me. You're trusting in me each and every day. On the Sabbath, there would be none supplied. Some people, were told, went out looking for it. Well, wait, it was here every other day. God says, you guys, I told you, collect twice as much the day before the Sabbath. Right? But, but some people just ignored God. It was like white coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Well, that sounds pretty good. They ate the manna for 40 years until they reached the promised land. What? Yeah, God supplied miracle bread from heaven for 40 years until they reached the promised land. That's amazing. Right? That's absolutely amazing. They didn't trust God's provision. They whined and complained, but God provided. He provided in an amazing and miraculous way for them. The manna, like the water that we looked at, was simply meant to be a foreshadowing of far greater bread to come. John chapter 6, verse 31. The Jewish leaders are... Uh, challenging Jesus. Jesus has just fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. And they challenged Jesus and said, why don't you give us a sign? Wait, what? He just fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. And they tell him, no, no, we're, we're talking about this kind of sign. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now Jesus could say, guys, are you not paying attention? I just fed thousands of people with five loaves of bread. But that's not really the point he wants to make here. Instead, Jesus responds like this. And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As God provided salvation for Israel through this miracle bread that provided life for them in the wilderness, Jesus says, so I am the true bread of life that provides all sustenance for people. Everything that their soul needs is found in me. He is the bread of life. He provides the living water. Jesus is the bread that fully satisfies our soul. He is the bread that fully satisfies our soul. Through the work of the bread of life, we have life in God. Through the work of the bread of life, we have life to the full. Through the work of the bread of life, we have life forever. And we remember that every time we come before this table and take this bread in our hands that it represents the bread of life who gave his life on our behalf so that we might have life to the full forever with God. And I want to invite us into a time of communion where we take the bread in our hands and we remember the bread of life who made this sacrifice on our behalf. Would you bow your heads with me? And would you take a moment to ready your hearts to meet with Jesus over the Lord's table.
Would you recognize why he had to give himself up? Recognize your own sin. The reason for the cross. Recognize his forgiveness and his mercy poured out upon you. Focus on the goodness of life that there is in Jesus. The living water that wells up in our soul through the Spirit of God. The bread of life that sustains and fulfills us. Focus on his goodness. When your hearts are ready, I'd invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to make your way to the tables in the corners of the room and to bring the bread and the cup back to your seat and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements together. Would you, would you stand with me and let's continue uh, to praise Jesus in song together.